Well, hello uh, to those of you who've uh, come. Thank you very much uh, for that. And I hope uh, we have a great time uh, together. And I look forward to interacting with you as we go through. Um, just like I did yesterday, if you were here, I'm going to break at various points as I go through. So it won't be a solid lecture for me in sort of 15 minutes Q&A at the end. Uh, rather, I'll keep breaking uh, after we've covered a little section and talk about that and, and try and move it along. Uh, that does, of course, risk the fact that I might not get to all of my material, um, but I hope it whets your ashed, uh, appetite, anyway, for um, the apologetic about Jesus. Um, in a sense, this talk is uh, really a plug for my forthcoming book, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. And rather annoyingly, uh, it, it did not come out in print in time to be here at ELF. It's being published at the beginning of September. It's available online for pre-order now from places like Amazon, but I can't actually wave copies at you, uh, sadly. Uh, those of you uh, who were here just a few moments ago may have caught the, the tail end of a piece of uh, prog rock music. I mentioned prog rock in my talk yesterday. I thought I'd play you a bit uh, from uh, the transatlantic uh, album uh, The Whirlwind, um, which was apposite because I've uh, dedicated the book uh, in the foreword, in the dedication to the band uh, Transatlantic for their album The Whirlwind. Um, they're a, a, a prog rock supergroup made up of members from both sides of the Atlantic. And they're not a Christian band, although you will have noticed if you were, uh, when I was playing it that it's a very explicitly Christian-themed album, and it's an album all about the second coming of Christ. Um, and Neil Morse, who's kind of the band leader and the keyboard player in the band, is uh, a Christian. And the other members are not, but they're obviously open uh, to exploring those themes in their music. And I think it is a, a superb album. Uh, and it's all about Christ and uh, salvation and the second coming and stuff. So I've dedicated this, uh, this book to them. So I thought it would be very apposite to play, play you a bit of them. Maybe I'll play a bit at the end for those of you who hang around. Anyway, uh, you should have uh, some outlines. And there, there are copies of these outlines available on the back table if you don't. I hope I've given you uh, some of the, the crucial sort of charts and uh, uh, bits of uh, information and quotations that I'll go through. Some of which might be a little bit small on the, the overhead. For example, the chart you have on page four appears rather small, but you have it all there uh, in the outline. Uh, Bernard Brandon Scott says that the historical quest for the historical Jesus has ended. The interdisciplinary quest for the historical Jesus has begun. And so this is kind of my justification for uh, putting my feet into the waters of historical Jesus research uh, as someone who's not a historian or a New Testament scholar. Rather, I'm a, a philosopher and a, a general Christian apologist, but I'm uh, trying to bring a sort of philosophical framing to this question and uh, various philosophical angles on the way in which one goes about looking at Jesus. So there's just a quick rundown of the contents of the book, and basically after introducing what I'm going to do and trying to frame it in a certain way, I give uh, five ways, as I call them, aping Thomas Aquinas' fav famous five ways uh, for uh, arguing for God in the Summa Theologica, five ways for understanding Jesus in the Christian manner before uh, drawing it all together. And I begin by making some rhetorical moves, as it were, trying to uh, recapture 
and to align uh, a Christian approach to these matters with some uh, sort of buzz terms, as it were. Uh, Understanding, enlightenment, and spirituality. You can see that in the title there, I'm trying to, uh, hopefully in the title, sort of appeal to an audience that might not necessarily normally uh, be attracted to such a book. Understanding Jesus' five ways to spiritual enlightenment. Uh, Well, what do I mean by those terms? Well, understanding, I like uh, American philosopher Peter Kreeft's uh, definition of understanding. He says, you understand something when you stand under the authority of the truth to determine what you believe. So it's not a self-centered, I will make my own reality, I will make things that are just true for me, but it's an outward-looking, sort of humble approach to truth. And I try and align the reader with that kind of attitude at the beginning of the book. Enlightenment is a term that often gets associated with kind of scepticism, which is a term, I, again, a term I tried to reclaim in the framing of my previous book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, and say I'm sceptical in the original sense that I question things and I want to have good reasons for what I believe and so on, but by entering into that process I end up being sceptical of atheism, not sceptical of God. Scepticism is, if you like, the, the process of inquiry rather than a label for one's conclusion. Well, uh, again, trying to recapture the term enlightenment and point out the, the massive use of enlightenment imagery in the New Testament. You know, Jesus is the light of the world. John, in particular, uses huge amounts of imagery to do with enlightenment, uh, things that give you a moment of insight into uh, reality. And spirituality, a term that often gets banded around with, with very a little definitional certainty. And I try and give it some. I'm inspired by Jesus here, but I present it as a general schema of spirituality. That a spirituality is a way of relating to reality, to all of reality, yourself, other people, the world, whatever ultimate reality may be. And you do this uh, relating to reality through your beliefs about what's true about reality, through your attitudes about it, which coupled together lead you to um, behave and act in certain ways in the world. A spirituality is a sort of way of life or a way of relating to reality. And it includes your worldview, but it also in- includes your heart, your commitments, the things that you do because of that. Well, as Jesus taught in uh, response to the question about what's the greatest commandment, he said that true spirituality meant loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. Everything you think, everything you have an attitude about, everything that you do. So he's putting a particular content into that structure, but he's also revealing the, uh, the, uh, the structure of spirituality, whether it's an atheist's spirituality or a Hindu spirituality or a New Age's spirituality or Christian spirituality. They all, I suggest, have this structure. So I'm, I'm uh, pointing to the fact that um, this is not simply a book about uh, philosophy or about ideas. There's things about your whole way of life and your attitudes uh, at stake in this study. Of course, Jesus taught that the way into Christian spirituality of loving God and neighbour 
with all of oneself is through Jesus himself. When he said things like, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's from John or from Matthew. Um, uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am the sort of access point given by God to enter into the spirituality of Christianity, a Christ-centred spirituality. Of course, originally, Christians didn't call Christianity Christianity. They called it the way. Reflecting Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the way to access relationship with God. I am the truth about God incarnate. I am the life of God being offered to you. Um, it was critics of the way that first labelled it Christianity. Um, but the name has, has stuck. So in this book I basically set out to show that understanding Jesus' own take on spirituality should lead us to understand, to stand under, Jesus himself by adopting a Jesus-centred spirituality, that we should understand Jesus in the Christian way, which is the way in which he understood himself. That's the kind of framing that I put at the beginning, and I come back to that issue of spirituality and actually coming to put one's trust in Jesus, as well as believing certain things about Jesus at the end of the book. So it really works all the way up through to a, a sort of altar call, as it were. I also point out that uh, any process of coming to understand reality involves a number of of, of different components that all interplay together. Uh, What we might, uh, in highfalutin language, call a hermeneutical dialogue. That just means um, having to think about lots of different stuff in order to know what you're about. It includes the spirituality, including the worldview, that people bring to the discussion. People are arriving at this inquiry with their own set of assumptions, their own spirituality already in place. And so people will differ widely in the assumptions they bring to reading a book about Jesus. But also, very important, is your, what we might say, your criteria of theory choice. Um, The kind of rules of thumb one thinks it's sensible to follow when trying to explain some set of data or understand reality. Then there is what one accepts as being the data that needs to be taken into account. What are the facts for which we have to account, which pe- for which people might offer differing interpretations or explanations, but we need to sort of be sure to have a sensible discussion about whose interpretation of the facts is, is most correct, that we're agreeing on what, what are the facts. If we disagree on what the facts are, we're not going to have a terribly fruitful discussion about whose interpretation of the facts is the best. And so we then arrive at a matter of interpretation and explanation, inferring or deducing a, a, a certain view on things from the data that we've established by various choice of how to arrive at what that data is and our whole view of this will be shaped by the spirituality that we bring to the discussion. Let me put it in in a bit more concrete terms as it were. If we have here a series of boxes 
someone's worldview, criteria of establishing what the facts are, what one will admit the facts to be, and then how one is going to explain it. Suppose we start with someone who has an atheistic worldview over here. Well, that would mean that under their criteria of what sort of data they're going to allow into the discussion might very well be something like exclude anything that is claimed to be a miracle. Because, well, why let that into the discussion if miracles can't happen? And obviously miracles can't happen if there's no, no divinity. And so this data set here will be shaped, limited by this approach. And when it comes to explaining something, like, say, the resurrection of Christ claim, your explanatory options would basically boil down to saying the disciples were either deceived in some way, they were duped, or they were themselves being deceptive. Maybe they were duped by other people, maybe they were duped by themselves, their own psychology. Or maybe they were shysters out to trick people. But the one thing that you're not going to reach for as an explanation here is a miracle happened. Because, well, you know, that can't happen, can it? Depending, of course, to a certain extent, how firmly committed you are to atheism and to the rule exclude miracles from explanations at the beginning. But if you're really firmly committed to this, there's probably never going to be enough data from history to convince you to shift at the explanation end here. On the other kind of extreme, as it were, if you started with a firm commitment to belief in some kind of a God capable of working miracles, then your criteria of, of, of data and explaining things might include some rule along the lines of it might be sensible to admit that a miracle's happened in certain circumstances if various other criteria are met. And so you look at the data about the resurrection of Jesus and you might well conclude that the best explanation of that data is that a genuine resurrection happened. So I try and, and get readers of the book to sort out in their mind these different elements that go into how we understand things and to be self-reflectively aware of where they are on these elements. Particularly, of course, where they are in the worldview that they're already bringing to the discussion. And I then propose that what I'm going to do in the book is make what philosophers call a cumulative case. I'm going to give a series of arguments for understanding Jesus the Christian way. And what I've diagrammed here is supposing you have a firm commitment to an atheistic worldview, but not so firm that you are utterly dogmatic about it, as it were. Not so firm that you're going to say, no amount of evidence, however compelling, would ever get me to change my mind about my worldview. So you're not saying that the, the prior probability of the Christian understanding of Jesus is zero. You're just saying it's very, very low. It's very, very improbable that Christianity is true given where you're coming from. But that means, of course, that given enough good evidence, marshalled according to sensible rules of marshalling evidence to point to a conclusion, you're open, in principle, to being shifted a little bit up this scale of probability.
maybe if you were coming at this as an agnostic here, this would be the, the atheist, this might be the agnostic, they're pretty sure, if this is sort of 50-50 about who Jesus was, they're pretty sure there's no God, and so they're pretty sure that Jesus wasn't God. But they're starting higher up the scale than an atheist would be. And maybe someone who believes in some kind of a God, but they're not a Christian, would be even more open. Now, supposing these three people all think that each of my five arguments has the same weight, they all assess them in the same way, unlikely, but for the simplification of the diagram, they all take these arguments as each having the same kind of argumentative oomph to them. Well then, by the time they've worked through these arguments, they will hopefully have all shifted. And they may have shifted to different places. Maybe our atheist will have become very uncertain about whether or not Jesus was divine, but it's really become a kind of, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I, I, I'm agnostic about that now, but I, I used to be very certain that he wasn't. Maybe if the, the agnostic who started higher up assessed the arguments as having exactly the same weight, by the time they've gone through the cumulative case, they'd be over the 50-50 line, and they'd be relatively sure that Jesus was who Christians think he was. Someone who started out as a, a theist but not a Christian would end up even more sure that Jesus was who Christians think he was. As you work through a cumulative case, each element of that case, so long as it has some weight, you think it has some oomph to it, it doesn't matter that that argument alone doesn't convince you. What you have to realise is, if you think argument number one has some weight, it, as it were, soaks up some of your prior scepticism. So when you now come to assessing the second argument, you're starting off slightly less sceptical than you were before, even though you still might be sceptical on the whole, and so on, and so on, and so on. And actually, in a cumulative case, the overall weight of the evidence is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, because uh, if you said, okay, we have someone's testimony that something happened, let's say that has one kind of unit of evidence. Someone else comes along, and they independently say the same thing. Well, actually, it's not a case that one unit of evidence plus one unit of evidence equals two units of evidence. It's more actually a case that we've now got two units of evidence plus the fact that we've got independent testimony that something happened. When that testimony could have conflicted or undermined each other, but actually it agrees. And so there's something about the, the independent testimony that's a little bit above and beyond the fact that we just have these sort of unit, this unit of testimony we might apply to one person's testimony kind of doubled because there are two of them. Or think about it this way. Um, if we had lots of testimony that, it, that was only of one kind about some matter, well, it could be the case that we're simply repeatedly making some mistake that we haven't noticed in our access to reality. But supposing we have a case for something that relies upon all sorts of different kinds of evidence. So you've not only got testimonial witness, but you've got forensic evidence 
And it's not just um, DNA evidence, but it's DNA evidence and fingerprint evidence, and so on. Well, because of the fact that this evidence comes from all sorts of different fields, all sorts of different ways of getting at, at knowledge, again, that fact in and of itself tends to add some oomph to the overall weight of the case. And so in a cumulative case, you kind of have to keep track of the fact that as you're gradually working through, the sum is becoming slightly more than simply the addition of the parts, simply speaking. So what I do is say, OK, here's the cumulative case I'm going to make, and I think it is the cumulative case that Jesus and the disciples themselves make in the pages of the New Testament. There are five arguments, and I can't actually think of any additional arguments. They are looking at Jesus' self-image in the context of his actions and so on, and everything else we know about him. Jesus' miracles... Abstracting the resurrection is a particularly important and significant miracle. You could kind of bundle those two together, but I separate out resurrection as a particularly important uh, argument. Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and contemporary religious experience centred around Jesus. And that's something that allows me to bring this discussion about a historical figure 2,000 years ago right into the present day and start making connections about people actually believe they can connect with this Jesus here and now. So this isn't just a historical sort of matter. Anything that you would like to ask about that sort of framing and I'm, I'm sort of bringing a sort of careful... Uh, discussion of what philosophers call epistemology, how we know stuff, uh, to the investigation. Yeah. I would have a question uh, whether this cumulative case really works this way. It mm. seems to me more mathematical than psychologic. Mm. Sometimes uh, humans, or not sometimes, in majority ways, I think the humans do not live and act in this way. Mm. It's rather very disturbing directing to many ways and yeah. one argument can turn us around completely mm. and so on uh, is it tested uh, in, in reality somehow that's a very interesting question about is this approach of making a cumulative case tested in reality and aren't people sort of more complicated than simply a calculating machine that takes the input of the data and then adds it up and will follow it wherever it goes. Um, let me take that in, re in reverse, I think. Um, clearly, I would agree with you that people are not simply calculating machines. And part of the sort of rhetorical framing that I'm trying to give the discussion, why I have the chapters at the beginning and the end, rather than simply presenting the case, is to try and put people in a certain attitude of heart towards the issue to clear away doubts about you know surely Christianity is just about faith and that means not being rational so why should I even listen uh, to this isn't this just about what you believe no it's more about the whole framework of life and notice that you yourself have certain attitudes that you're bringing to this discussion 
that might make you more or less open to what I'm saying. And I'm going to give you, the reader, the responsibility of kind of keeping track of that as you go through. I'm not going to simply say, okay, you read this book, I will give you an argument, and by the end of the book, I will expect you to agree with me. I will have convinced you. You know, QED. Rather, what I'm going to say is I'm going to give you a set of tools for thinking, a set of very carefully sifted data that you can consider, point out the fact that different readers will start in different places, and that's fine, and you, as the reader, kind of keep track of what's going on for you as you go through and see where you end up. So there's a sort of responsibility-giving to the reader that I hope encourages them to engage in the process of following this argument more seriously and so on. So I, I'm, I'm doing some things to try and overcome that fact that I would agree with you with. Um, and in terms of does this kind of argument work, well, one thing you could say is it's the kind of argument that is, for example, used in laws of court every day, um, that people use in science every day. Um, there are large areas of life in which people have to make really serious decisions um, that utilise this kind of argument. Um, inference to the best explanation from what we reckon to be the relevant data. And of course, in all of those areas, you can say people aren't just calculating machines, people are swayed by their own assumptions and their upbringing and their culture. And yes, that is true, but I think we have to say, but that does not undermine completely the value of trying to convince one another using what is the best available method to get at this kind of reality. There's very little reality that we can get in the kind of mathematical, this is obvious, here's another axiom, QED, this deductive conclusion follows with necessity, um, and so on. Um, we have to try and um, recognise our limitations as knowers and do our best with it. Uh, so in a sense, you know, what other option do I have in this kind of field? Um, if I'm going to try and persuade people to adopt the Christian understanding of Jesus, it seems to me that there is no other sensible way of doing that. I either retreat from the attempt or I try and do something like this. It's just that I'm doing it in a way that, that highlights to the reader those kind of factors. And so that in itself may, may be more sort of engaging for them than, than simply assuming all of that in the background and just launching in, maybe. Yeah. Isn't it because you're doing it basically because you want to convince people who are convinced by the same kind of method that Christianity is not true? So you are basically mm. presenting your case to people who, are, who think Christianity is not true mm. as a result of the similar series of persuasive arguments. Yes, okay, so the, the question is saying... Um, I'm taking this approach surely because I'm trying to engage with people who are convinced to have a non-Christian understanding of Jesus because of the same kind of approach and methodology. Well, yes, in a sense, if, you, if as I'm saying, if people are going to engage with the issue in terms of what's the evidence and where does it point as a way of getting at reality, 
Um, they either agree w with me already or they disagree, but they're using the same kind of methodology because it's the only available methodology, really, I'm saying. Um, if people are not interested in that kind of approach, then certainly this book probably would not be for them. And there may then be other uh, avenues of knowing personal story, personal story um, putting them in a position to have a religious experience and so on um, that might be perfectly legitimate in and of themselves and this book wouldn't be for them um, but I think there are a large number of people for whom this kind of approach is helpful and certainly you can point to stories of people who have come to uh, a point of conversion through reading apologetic literature or going to a debate or that at least that's been a helpful part of their journey to faith yeah so I have a, a chapter in here about the reliability of the New Testament and the Gospels in particular and I'm not really going to go through that kind of material other than to say that I talk about I frame it in terms of trust being foundational and fundamental when you're considering evidence and often apologists launch into arguments, say, about the, the general reliability of the historical reporting in the New Testament. Uh, and, uh, say, giving support from archaeology. You know, here are various things that St. Luke men mentions in Luke and Acts. And where we've uh, managed to test what he claims, we've actually dug it up or dug up something that mentions the person that Luke mentions... And since uh, where we can test out what a, what a witness says and that pans out as being true, that tends to increase our confidence that they're a reliable kind of guy who knows what they're talking about. And so our trust in their testimony concerning things that we can't directly prove ourselves through digging it up or whatever tends to, to rise. And I do some of that, the kind of argument, but I ground it in saying, actually... When we're considering believing things because of someone's testimony, trust is actually foundational. Starting off with an attitude of, of, of trust or just reading or hear something someone's written or hearing something someone says and sort of developing that kind of inner intuitive sense, yeah, I think I trust what they're saying. There are actually uh, good philosophical and psychological and scientific uh, reasons and discussions that can be gone into, and I bring some of this out, that, that can go into backing up the rationality of doing that kind of thing. That thinking, if I, if I read someone's testimony, it just kind of strikes me as, as having that sort of ring of truth about it, that actually it's a perfectly legitimate and rational thing to do, to say, yeah, I find this testimony trustworthy. Just because of this kind of sense that I pick up from reading it and if we didn't actually place trust as our initial sort of default response to testimony we'd have a, a very hard time in life coming to know anything in a justifiable way huge amounts of what we believe and the, a huge amount of our beliefs in tools that we then go on to use in coming ourselves to believe things actually rely upon us trusting those who told us about it in circumstances where we're in no position to independently test 
the truth of their testimony. But if we didn't start out by trusting those who taught us the alphabet and so on, then we'd be in a very hard place concerning learning more independently. And so I, I frame it with some of the uh, contemporary philosophy about, about trust and uh, psychology experiments, about uh, people's uh, intuitions, and when we get a, a feeling about something, that that can actually be a, a way of us knowing things. We can actually feel our knowledge of stuff on occasion. Um, and I point to some very interesting psychology experiments uh, about sort of rigged card games that have been done, for example. And they have a, a rigged, uh, simple card game set up. Uh, and they uh, wire people who are playing this card game up to uh, sort of ECG machines and temperature sensors and so on, and things that will register stress. And then they have them play the game, and maybe there's one deck, deck of cards that's stacked in a certain bad direction, and one that's, that's even-handed in this game. And what they found out is that after a certain number of cards, people are able to say that deck of cards is bad news, the stacked one. But actually, before they're able to explicitly say, the psychologists notice that in terms of frequency of picking the decks and so on, people start avoiding the bad stacked deck. They've kind of subconsciously picked up on the fact that that's a bad deck even before they are prepared to say to the experimenters, ah, hang on, there's something fishy about this deck, not knowing initially which one it was. And actually, even before that, the signs of physiological stress kick in in relation to the bad deck. So there's a kind of subconscious awareness of things that then starts surfacing into people's actual behaviour even before they can explicitly say that's a bad deck because you know it's it's it seems to be rigged, we just kind of pick up on these things, uh, and the, you know those people who you know if they trusted their gut reaction about about it would actually do better in the game than someone who, who said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a big effort just to condition my behaviour by what I can explicitly and obviously know. So sort of knowledge has these, these, these levels and, and actually it can be uh, rational and there are things you can do to sh kind of show the rationality philosophically and psychologically of trusting your gut reaction to, say, reading someone's work and going, oh, that, that doesn't feel right to me. Particularly, I then talk about expert testimony the way in which you might get someone who's an expert in, in um, Ming vases or something, and you call them in as an expert to evaluate something, and you, you know, get the vase out on the table, and the expert goes, ooh, I think it's a forgery. Just because they've got such a wealth of experience with these things, that they've built up an intuitive capacity to kind of go, something's odd here, and they'll often be able to say, something's odd here, that's, I think that's not quite right, but then they'll have to actually do an exhaustive investigation to be able to show other people that they're right about that. But actually, because they're an expert, you know, and they've shown time and time again that when they have a gut feeling that something's not right, and then you do the investigation and it, it proves that they were right, 
you say, oh, well, we bring an expert in and we trust their opinion on it. So I look at, say, um, people who've spent their lives um, translating the New Testament and look at the, the C.S. Lewis's testimony about the Gospels not having been of the same genre as sort of pagan myth- mythology and so on against those theologians of the time who kind of say, oh, it's, it's all the same sort of stuff as ancient pagan myth. It's not really, it's legendary. Or it's, and Lewis sort of says as someone who's steeped in reading mythology and legends it just doesn't read like that that's just not the sense that you, you know these people how much myth and legend have they read <laughs> they're not experts in in that so looking at intuitive trust and expert testimony before then getting on to issues of you know, say the general reliability or the way in which even excluding all of that you can look at particular reliability in the New Testament if you have some rules that enable you to say, even if overall the historical testimony of the New Testament is dross, we have some rules that enable us to pick out those nuggets of truth from amongst the dross. Now, I'm not saying it is dross. I'm saying you can, you can establish this reliability at various different levels, which sort of acts as a sort of belt and braces approach to the data. Um, but I, as it were, am willing to grant the sceptic to the utmost of scepticism, as it were, and still say, look, here are the... I'm only going to try and use the data that you would arrive at, even if you came at this with the assumption that overall the New Testament is not reliable although I've argued that it is. So I'm really taking a belt and braces approach to the selection of the data that we're going to have the, the, the discussion of what's the best explanation of that data upon. So I, I create as much common ground with the, the sceptic, in inverted commas, as I, as I can. Anything on that material? How's our timing going? 4.39, Okay. Okay, let's, let's make sure we get through some of these, these ways at least. Uh, the first way, Jesus' self-identity. Uh, it's often known as the lunatic liar-lord argument. Uh, it's popularised by people like uh, Josh McDowell and famously C.S. Lewis as well. Uh, but it goes back a long way. Actually, it has a, it even have a, has a Latin name that tells you how long it goes back. But this is a, a quote from Professor John Duncan, a, a Scots professor from the 18th, 19th century. And he put it like this. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this. And he coins the trilemma. Sometimes it's called the trilemma argument. And you can kind of diagram it like this. Given you accept the data that Jesus claimed divinity his claim was false or his claim was true of course if his claim to be divine was true then he is divine but what about the the kind of the sceptical categories here his claim was false well did he believe it himself or did he not it would seem that either he believed it or, or he didn't if he believed it and it was false then he is basically, to use the alliterative term, a loony. He is vastly adrift from reality. There's a big gap 
between his reality and his self-understanding. About as big a gap as you could imagine, really. If he falsely claimed to be divine but, and didn't believe that claim himself, then he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a blasphemer. Uh, to the extent to which one thinks that these two options are implausible in the light of everything else one thinks one can know about Jesus' character for his words, his actions, his effect on, on his disciples and history and so on. So it becomes that more plausible to think that the Lord option is true. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, which is a category people often want to put him into. He wasn't divine, but he was a great moral teacher. Lewis says he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the very devil of hell, so the liar option. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But he hasn't really left any other options open to us. One of the major comebacks to this argument really is to say that that starting assumption that Jesus really did claim divinity is, is wrong. The idea that Jesus claimed to be divine is a legend. It's, a, it's an interpretation of him foisted on the real historical Jesus by people later on. And so you get things like, uh, this is a quote from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, where Professor Teabing says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the son of God, says another character. Right, Teabing said, Jesus' establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD. So here's the idea that nobody really thought of Jesus as being divine until the 4th century AD, which is a load of bunkum. And you can prove it without ever going to the Christian New Testament. You can take an indirect evidence route here to Jesus' self-identity, as well as a more direct route. Indirectly, I start the book off by, by looking at the story of some of the early church martyrs. This is Ignatius of Antioch, who uh, one early church historian says was killed by being torn apart by lions in 108 AD. When he refused to deny Christ, he was sentenced to be transported to Rome and thrown to the lions as a discouragement to Christians along the way. Actually, what happened is he wrote a number of letters to different Christian communities that they stopped at along the way, and he ended up inspiring and encouraging the faith of the Christians along the way because of his willingness to die uh, for his belief in Christ. Now, Ignatius was a disciple of John the Apostle. And uh, a couple of other guys say that the Apostle Peter was the one who appointed Ignatius as the Bishop of Antioch. So uh, Ignatius talks about relying on the living and abiding voice of those who knew Jesus. He may have known some of the New Testament documents that were written by then. They were all written by the end of the first century. He seems to have known some of the Gospels, perhaps. But that wasn't for him the major thing. His knowledge about Jesus 
came from the living and abiding voice of the eyewitness generation. Here's Ignatius on the timeline here, with this being sort of 0 AD. Here's the eyewitness generation. And Ignatius knew personally, according to various sources, Peter and John, who had known Jesus. And it was because of their eyewitness testimony to him about Jesus that he was sufficiently confident in the truth of the Christian claims to put his life willingly on the line when he could have saved it. Now that does, I think, say something, as we philosophers say, truth conducive. It's obviously the fact that just because someone's willing to die for a belief, that doesn't show that the belief is true. The fact that a jihadist suicide bomber is willing to kill themselves and to murder other people for their belief system doesn't really do anything to show that that belief system is true, does it? But the willingness of someone to be murdered for the truth of a claim that they are confident in because they themselves claim to have witnessed the event or claim to know people who witnessed the event, that's a rather different matter. And it does seem to say something about their level of confidence in that testimony and in the truth, the historicity of those events. If they weren't really sure about it, you'd think that they would avoid their, their avoidable death. So Ignatius, in I just quote from a couple of his very famous letters, they're amongst the earliest uh, writings of Christians outside of the New Testament that we have. And it's almost, he has these passages that are almost very naturally sort of creedal in content. This is Ignatius writing in, say, 107-108 AD. Turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ, who was of David's line, born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank, who was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly crucified and died, who was truly raised from the dead, the Father having raised him, who in like manner will raise us who believe in him. It's clear where Ignatius' confidence comes from. This is a very early Christian fresco, wall painting, and it's been dated to around 235 AD, so a century before the Council of Nicaea. And it's pretty clear from the painting when you study it. You have here someone on a bed. And just next to that image, you have that bed being carried. And there's a figure here standing over the person on, the, on his bed, pointing at the person. And this is a you know, Christian fresco. It's pretty clearly a depiction of the story of Jesus healing the man on his bed and the story that Mark refers to within which Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven, now pick up your mat, your bed, being interpreted pretty literally a century after here as a sort of bed. Um, Pick up your bed and walk. Uh, But that means it's very plausible to think that a century before the Council of Nicaea, people knew about a story that includes Jesus claiming something that's only claimable of divinity and doing something, a miraculous thing, that backs up that claim. 
This is also highly interesting. This is the floor, we're looking top down at it, of a Christian prayer hall unearthed by archaeologists near Megiddo. It's been dated to about 230 AD, so again a century earlier than the Council of Nicaea. First thing to notice is the mosaic here, which has fish in the centre of the mosaic. And we know, of course, that the fish was an early Christian symbol, because in Greek the, the words for fish, ichthus, uh, stood for an acrostic that was the letter that said, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So, um, you know, that's an indication that a century before the Council of Nicaea, this idea of Jesus Christ, Son of God, might be underlying the fact that there are fish depicted in the, in the, the fresco here. It's uh, maybe an indication, but not really knocked down, is it? You might interpret it other ways. But this bit of writing here, which this is a close-up of, is hugely fascinating. It, it refers to the table in the middle. This is the, the base of the table. The, the table tops now disappeared. But it was basically the table at the centre of the prayer hall for having communion on. And the text here in Greek says, The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table, it's like, I paid for the table, you know, uh, has offered the table to the God, Jesus Christ. So there's a bit of archaeological written evidence that at least a century before the Council of Nicaea, there were people in the Holy Land who considered Jesus as God. Or this bit of graffiti called the Alexaminos Graffito. It's been given a range of dates in different books that I've looked at, but it certainly predates the Council of Nicaea. First to third, third century, as I've seen the range of dates, but it's at least 100, if not uh, two, 300 years earlier than the Council of Nicaea, therefore, isn't it? And you can just about make out here, there's a figure on a cross, a human figure on a cross with a donkey's head. And a figure in front of that figure on the cross, raising a, a hand. And the text here says, uh, Alexaminos worships his God. Who do we know in the ancient world who worshipped someone who was crucified and would therefore have been a figure of fun to uh, a fellow Roman soldier? That was the context this was drawn in. So you can kind of apply this lunatic liar lord trilemma structure to, well, where did the people who were believing that Jesus was God this early in relation to these, test, these witnesses and so on, where did they get their, did they just make up this belief for some reason? Were they lying about it? Were they deceivers or were they deceived by the original eyewitnesses and martyrs and so on? What was the motive for whoever invented this supposed legend? So, on. so actually the, the sort of trilemma argument uh, Peter Kreeft here points out applies to simply looking at the data of people's belief in Jesus that early uh, and closely connected to Jesus' life. You could look at all sorts of stuff directly, um, including, say, what Jesus says at his trial when he really puts his foot right in it um, in terms of, of getting himself crucified. If you wanted to you know, have any time for a bit of theological nuance when you want to say, well, I know that I, you know, I said to the crowds, you know, I am. 
I am the way, the truth, and life, etc. But you know, what I meant was, you know, don't misunderstand me, guys. I'm not putting myself in the in the in the shoes of God. Gracious me, no. You know, <gasps> his life's on the line here. What does he do? He really makes sure he crosses the line and then some. Um, by referring back in his reply talking about the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one of God coming on the clouds of heaven the picture of the traditional Jewish picture of the glory of heaven the high priest's reaction tearing, rending his clothes in a traditional sign of, of mourning for blasphemy and they all condemn him as worthy of death because he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7 which talks about one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven approaching God, the ancient of days Given all authority, glory, and sovereign power, these things only belong to God. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him, can only worship God, according to the Old Testament, and yet the Son of Man is given worship, and Jesus, of course, on various occasions accepted worship from people, and the Son of Man is described as having an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. No finite potentate can have that. And so on. So Jesus, by referring back to the Daniel vision in front of his accusers and basically saying to them, you think you're judging me, but I, the son of man, am going to come back on the throne of God and judge you. <laughs> Crucify him. You know. So he really um, went over the line deliberately. And so I think it's fair to say that you can establish from a number of different angles, as Gary Habermas says there, that Jesus really did think of himself as in the shoes of deity, as divine. Not the same person of God the Father, that leads on to the whole how did Christians work out the doctrine of Trinity and so on, but it's clearly kind of putting himself in shoes that according to Jewish theology can only be worn by God himself, as it were. Once you've got the data, it's, well, what's the best explanation? You've got logically limited explanatory options, as we've already seen. Uh, Richard Dawkins' response to this argument, it's quite a laugh, so I'll share it with you. Um, asked by a journalist about, you know, what about C.S. Lewis and so on, and Richard Dawkins responds, uh, well, C.S. Lewis, well, he was a professor of English, you know, it's just to s- dismiss him, not mention the fact that he also studied and taught philosophy early on in his career. Um, when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic, says Dawkins, things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the son of God. It didn't seem to occur to Lewis that Jesus could simply be mistaken, sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. <laughs> I share your sense of humour with this, sir. Jesus could simply be sincerely and honestly mistaken. I love Nicky Gumbel of the Alpha Course, his response to this. He says, the irony of Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God, but that Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. That just seems to be a a circle that you can't square. As Mike King puts it, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way, if you're honestly mistaken that you're divine, 
you would inevitably be considered as insane. This is really not another category that's been left out of some sort of false dilemma of an argument. But why? Isn't it interesting? Why does Dawkins go for that patently kind of absurd response? Why should Dawkins and, and his compatriots not be content to simply dismiss, dismiss Jesus as either mad or bad? Why not go for those options? Well, surely it's because everything else we know about Jesus points away from those two options. It's only the assumption that Jesus couldn't be divine because there's no God that points away from the Lord conclusion. And so this argument to me does seem to have some weight. But rather than, as some apologists perhaps have in the past, thinking, okay, I can present this argument to a non-Christian audience, establish the data, give them the trilemma, give them a bit of a laugh at Richard Dawkins to break the ice, and they will all now be convinced that Christianity is true, what I'd rather do is, is take a sort of minimal approach... If I've convinced them, that's great. But all I'm going to say is, doesn't it seem to you that that argument has some weight to it? Surely that must soak up, therefore, some of your scepticism about Jesus. Even though I'm perfectly willing to admit that this argument on its own is nowhere near enough to convince you that Jesus is Lord. And maybe through taking that approach, people might be willing to say, yeah, okay, there's some evidence pointing towards the Christian understanding of Jesus, but nowhere near enough to convince me. Yeah. You have a fourth approach to this uh, from New Age and Eastern religions Mm. that um, we have misunderstood Jesus and he, he was proclaiming all... All that uh, is in the Bible, but it's our interpretation that is wrong. Uh, that he is the first yeah. illuminated door. Yes. He, he's, uh, so the question here is that... It's a different type of God, that's what you mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let, me, let me repeat it for the tape here, so that, yeah. but you're, you're making absolutely the right point. The question is, um, there would be people who make a sort of response for a sort of New Age or Eastern pantheistic kind of worldview background who would say we've misunderstood what Jesus was claiming he did indeed claim to be divine but of course what you have to understand is what he was really saying is well I'm divine you're divine the table's divine um, the tree is divine we're all divine everything is divinity we're all one aren't we Um, now as the other (laughs) gentleman in the audience quite rightly uh, maybe wants to jump in and say because I do as well um, but that is to completely abstract Jesus' words from his context and to read in an alien philosophy onto it. You know, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and clearly from things like that passage I showed about how he put his foot in it, as it were, with his accusers in the Jewish Sanhedrin, by referring back to Daniel, he's not saying, I am a son of man, a divine figure, and so are you, and so are you, and so are you. He's saying, I am the son of man and I will be coming on God's throne and judging you God as understood within the Jewish monotheistic tradition Jesus is clearly claiming divinity in that Jewish theological sense and not in a eastern pantheistic new agey kind of sense yeah of course I agree 
no problem. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sure. But, but it is a modern approach, and mm. uh, it's uh, the knowledge about um, Jesus is <coughs> is not so high. So yes. So uh, it's increasing, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and in the, of course, when each one of these arguments in the book, I take about ten, twelve thousand words to lay the argument out. So you've got enough time there to really kind of structure it and give lots of detail, lots of backup, lots of context so that it, you, you, you're not simply getting audiences making, falling into those kinds of, of misunderstandings. Yeah. Yes, sir. I just caught myself uh, realising, kind of, as I relate to your argument, by looking at Dawkins' ridiculous mm. uh, backing out, was a far more powerful argument mm. for the other three yeah. Than the other three itself. So when I see the the reaction of someone mm. who doesn't want to face the the weight of the argument, yes, it's actually far more revealing of the weight of the argument than mm. just following through, you know, in a positive way. Yes. Like going alongside with you. Yeah, yeah. Just making this step by step yeah. kind of things. So it's when when they hit the 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 dogmatic skeptical, mm. it reveals far more about the power of the argument than. Yeah. Just you know, just building the the, the arguments. That Absolutely. was a very interesting yeah. experience for me. I mean, just mm. listening to okay. to the story. Yes, I, I agree. Excellent point again uh, from the audience about the, the power of using that quote from Richard Dawkins um, and the way in which I often find it in apologetics really useful to quote from atheists and, and skeptics of one stripe or another. Um, partly because it gets around that whole audience expectation of, oh, well, you or that theologian or philosopher, Christian or philosopher you're quoting would say that, wouldn't they, because they're on your side. And it gets rid of that perceived issue about bias that many people carry around with them. But also, when you, yeah, when you see Richard Dawkins reacting to that lunatic lie or argument in such a sort of odd way, and you, and you kind of say, well, why, why not grasp the other horns of the... The dilemma, the trilemma, that clearly are the only other horns of the trilemma. It really highlights the difficulties of doing that and the soundness of the, the structure of the, of the argument. You're, you're right on, on target. Uh, what time are we finishing? I must not overgo. So I may have... 5.30. OK, we'll get an, another one or two or three. We'll see. The second way, then building on that, so hopefully having kind of shifted the reader a little bit up there, confidence or lowered their scepticism, depending on which way around you want to describe it, a look at Jesus' miracles. And I start off by establishing these um, criteria for particular reliability that, that I just mentioned and talking about the background of discussions in philosophy about miracles. And still today, the, the figure that always comes up in these discussions is this handsome chap here, the Scots philosopher David Hume. And he's uh, particularly famous uh, in this area for having described a miracle, defined a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature. I think he's making a particular rhetorical move here. It makes it sound as if were there to be a God who worked a miracle, he'd be somehow um, illegitimately interfering violating the integrity of nature. It makes a, you know, basically makes a miracle sound like an act of rape. Uh, and who wants to defend that? You know, there's a rhetorical move going on there, but he also has some, uh, an argument that's been interpreted in a number of different ways over the years against either 
the occurrence or belief in miracles. And so I spend a little time trying to get away from that kind of straw man definition and crafting a better understanding of, of a miracle, partly because it, it sidesteps some of the philosophical difficulties with it, partly because it highlights something about the way in which mir- miracles are not just kind of astounding conjuring tricks that make us go, Ooh, wow, that was amazing. They're events that act as signs in the New Testament. They, they reveal their revelatory things in and of themselves. So I define a miracle as an event where some created reality achieves an end, a goal, that lies beyond its inherent nature. Um, And take as an analogy, if you were to see uh, a yew tree in the shape of an elephant, you would immediately think, ah, someone has learnt the art of topiary, of sculpting trees into shapes because it is beyond the inherent capacities of what a yew tree is in and of itself to grow into the shape of an elephant yew trees don't grow into shapes of elephants so you see one in the shape of an elephant and you think okay the yew tree may have been a necessary condition of what i'm seeing as it were but I have to appeal to something outside of the yew tree. Some intelligence has been at work to explain what I'm seeing. Something that lies beyond its inherent nature that's best explained as being caused, whether directly or indirectly, by some special application of God's willpower. God is always sustaining the universe in existence. There'd be no yew trees moment by moment if God didn't sustain the existence of the universe. Um, And God may directly or indirectly cause certain things to happen. Think of when the the children of Israel were just coming up to the promised land and they needed to enter the promised land and there's a mudslide downstream and the water all piles up downstream at a particular village and they have dry land to walk across into the promised land. Now there's nothing kind of inherently, as it were, supernatural about a mudslide happening. It's been recorded in that region of the world at various points throughout history. And uh, there's an interesting photograph of one of the uh, recent uh, occasions in the uh, uh, early 20th century of a partial mudslide that almost blocked the river again. So you could kind of say, oh, well, you know, that, that wasn't a miracle. They were just lucky. But, of course, there's only a certain amount of luck that we can admit, admit into our explanations of things before that looks like special pleading. The fact that that combination of natural events happened just at the moment when the children of Israel needed to complete their journey of liberation from Egypt to the Promised Land in that religious context makes it reasonable to think that maybe, you know, maybe God arranged for that landslide to happen in order... F- to cause the water to stop so that they could walk across. And all of this happening signifies, because of who it comes from, it signifies something of God's character and purposes. It's not just a, let me amaze you with a magic trick. It's let me reveal something about myself. Let me achieve something that's within my purposes, within my salvation plan, and so on. So this is Jesus uh, from John 14. Believe me 
when I say I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Take my testimony for it. Believe me because of who I am. But then he says, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Great verse to turn to in your Bible if you're dialoguing with an atheist who's picked up this whole new atheist thing of faith means believing without evidence, doesn't it? So, well, not according to Jesus, it doesn't. Let me show you. <laughs> Jesus said, at least believe on the evidence. So I think miracles are an illuminating, well-attested category of Jesus' actions, his deeds. And they're interesting because they simultaneously, they express his self-understanding when you look at them in context. And they provide independent verification of his self-understanding. In a sense, Jesus' miracles sharpen the trilemma argument. Because remember, that was... That argument came into focus when you look at the context of his claims in light of everything else we know about him. What he said, how he affected people, what he did, how he behaved. Well, performing miracles was part of how he behaved. There were things that he seems to have done. And so they reveal something about, were they good things? Did he use miracles for his own selfish ends? No, he didn't. So that says something about his character. But also the fact that he works miracles gives an independent verification of his claims to have divinity, to be able to exercise divine power. If I, if I do these things by the finger of God, then, as Jesus says to his uh, interrogators, and if you bring into play the Old Testament background from places like Psalm 107, Exodus 16, 2 Kings 4, Job 9, that hopefully all on your worksheets there. Things like Jesus' miracles of calming the storm, which is evidenced by early evidence, multiple testimony, including eyewitnesses, and it's embarrassing. This is where some of these criteria of how you can tell that something's reliable, even if you make the assumption that it's generally not. But if you find something in that text that's multiply attested, that's embarrassing to the person making the claim, think in terms of, of um, calming the storm, the disciples' lack of faith in Jesus is rather embarrassing to them. Here are the leaders of the church saying, we didn't have enough faith to trust Jesus to save us. People don't tend to tell stories against themselves unless they're being honest about what really happened. Um, so you can say this passes multiple of these standard historical tests of reliability. Or feeding the 5,000 from very little. Um, or his walking on water. And these three miracles pass multiple of these kind of standard historical, historical criteria. They're against the Old Testament background, best understood as kind of enacted claims to divinity. They're kind of parables that are enacted within which Jesus makes claim to being divine against the Old Testament background that says, you know, God is the one who stills the waters of chaos or he walks upon the face of the deep or he is the one that brings manna from heaven to save the children of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus and John the Baptist, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist here, is a very interesting case in point. Um, 
the early Q tradition, and that's, that's simply a, an earlier tradition that many scholars think has worked into the Gospel of Mark, which is the, the itself the earliest Gospel. So it's a source that even predates the earliest Gospel. Reports that when John the Baptist was languishing in Herod's jail, <coughs> suffering embarrassing doubts about whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah, as he'd previously said... He sent messages asking, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replies, a couple of references there, basically he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, etc, etc. Which is echoing the messianic prophecies of of Isaiah. (laughs) Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leak like, like a deer. So Jesus is basically making an argument here, a nice syllogistic argument for the philosophers. Premise one, if someone does X kinds of actions, as recorded by Isaiah, then they are the Messiah. Premise two, I do X kind of actions. Conclusion, therefore I am the Messiah. So Jesus is using his miracles in the light of the Old Testament background to lay claim to divinity. But the fact that he's laying claim to divinity by doing miracles also gives independent witness to his divinity as well as being part of the lunatic liar lord argument. Uh, John, of course, in referring to Jesus as Messiah, had been referring back to Malachi 3 verse 1. Um, Jesus identified John as the messenger prophesied in Malachi. I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple, etc. But in Matthew and Luke both apply the prophecy of Isaiah 40 to John. A voice of one in the wilderness calling, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there's an entailment to Jesus' reply to John. Again, drawing on this Old Testament background. Jesus is the Messiah, which we already established at the end of the previous argument. But now we can add, the Messiah is God. Conclusion, therefore Jesus is God. So it's not just the, the Messiah, it really is the claim to divinity that's being made and independently witnessed here. And surprisingly, perhaps you might think, there's actually something of a a scholarly consensus out there across the the field of scholars from different worldviews, different opinions, but there is something of a consensus. Jochum Jeremias, Jewish scholar, for example, says, even when strict critical standards have been applied to the miracle stories, a demonstrably historical nucleus remains. The debate tends to be over what's the best explanation of the fact that Jesus did things that he and the people around him thought were miraculous. Whether or not people will investigate the question of, well, maybe they were right, that'll depend on the worldview they're bringing to it. But that Jesus did things that were apparently miraculous, considered by those around him as being miracles, is a generally accepted piece of data. John Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar, this is a fascinating quote. He says that some people might assume that miracles come into the tradition later. A bit like Dan Brown saying the idea that Jesus was divine came in later. 
uh, as creative confirmation rather than as original data. But John Dominic Crossan, as a member of the very liberal Skeptical Jesus Seminar, says such an assumption would be completely wrong. The better explanation is just the opposite. Miracles were, at a very early stage, being washed out of the tradition. And when retained, were being very carefully interpreted. For example, Matthew, who gets a lot of his gospel from Mark's gospel, excludes or shortens Mark's miracle stories. And John doesn't even mention any exorcisms in his gospel. I hold, in summary, says Crossan, that Jesus as miracle worker, was a very problematic and controversial phenomenon, not only for his enemies, but even his friends. These miracle stories meet multiple attestation, embarrassment, enemy attestation, all sorts of criteria. And you've got a a lovely graph here that lists 18 miraculous events of of Jesus' life that are independently witnessed. Not only is every category of miracle, I've divided them up into sort of healings, exorcisms, nature miracles, like stilling the waters. Not only is every category of miracle performed by Jesus attested by multiple early independent sources, even specific miracles are attested in that way that passes several different standard historical criteria, including eyewitness reports from John and Matthew and Q that follow very closely upon the reported events, especially in comparison with other works of ancient history. Some of that stuff I go to in an earlier chapter. Um, There's embarrassing enemy attestation, like the accusation that Jesus is working miracles because he's in league with the devil. Um, So the enemies say, yes, okay, we admit you're working miracles, but that's because you're in league with the devil, you're evil. But even the enemies recognise that he was doing miraculous things. And you can look at attestation, enemy attestation to this outside of the Bible, For example, in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, it talks about Jesus uh, being uh, executed, being stoned. Uh, That was just the formal way of saying he was given capital punishment because he practiced sorcery. Or Josephus in the Antiquities saying that at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, a doer of startling deeds. Uh, In 180 AD, there was a pagan philosopher called Celsus who wrote that it was by magic that Jesus was able to do the miracles which he appears to have done. Um, So from Jewish, pagan and Christian sources, um, you get the same general picture of a Jesus that was believed to have worked miracles, and those miracles pass multiple independent historical criteria. Can you give just Hmm. a list of, just mention, all the criteria that uh, historical okay. uh, Yeah, there's a question here just about what, what the, can I list these criteria. Um, there's quite a number of them, and I have a discussion in the book about how I would define them, what ones I think are important and so on. There are different overlapping lists that are di- used by slightly different schools of, of, of thought on it, as it were. But I would particularly highlight uh, independent 
attestation, something uh, that's slightly more than multiple. You can have multiple, but for example, if Luke regurgitates, as it were, in inverted commas, a story told by Mark, is that an independent witness or not? Well, he does say at the beginning of his gospel he carefully investigated everything himself. So he is adding his testimony to it, even if he copies the form of words from Mark. But John's gospel, the non-synoptic gospel, sounds in an independent tradition. So if you have a miracle that's witnessed by, say, Mark and John, then you have multiple independent testimony, and that's very, very strong. Um, enemy attestation, if people who, who disagree with the viewpoint admit something about it, I think that's uh, very strong. The uh, criteria of embarrassment, that people don't tend to tell stories against themselves unless they're being honest. Uh, and it's interesting to say that Mark's gospel is usually understood as, as having Peter's preaching stories standing behind it, and Mark was Peter's uh, sort of note-taker and scribe and so on. Uh, and it's Mark's gospel that has the most embarrassing things to say about Peter, who, who is the, the, the figure that frames the gospel and is the turning point in the middle, where Jesus turns to Peter, you know, the, the rock, the pillar of the church, the leader of the church, and says, get me behind, get behind me Satan. Um, that's rather an embarrassing thing uh, for the leader of an organisation to say basically about himself through, through Mark. Um, so I think those are particularly significant but there are, there are all sorts of other ones um, such as does it show, does it fit with what we know about the socio-cultural uh, background, um, does it uh, reveal uh, signs of just sort of um, unneeded details in the text that we can check independently. If you were making up a story and writing it from a different time and place, would you necessarily know things like the what was the most popular ten names in Jerusalem in the first century? And yet, if you do an independent comparison gathered from stone ostery boxes of people's names at the time and look through the New Testament and do charts of the frequency, Peter J. Williams, my almost namesake, is, is very good at explaining these uh, arguments in the New Testament in particular, um, you find out that the New Testament gets exactly the right kind of proportions of people's names or place names for, as those sources. Whereas if you then did a comparison with, say, the Gnostic Gospels of the 2nd and 3rd centuries onwards, you find that they do not get that kind of information right and actually a lot of the time they, they steer clear of even attempting to give that kind of information because they don't have access to it. So the fact that the New Testament documents do make the attempt and get it right tells you that they were written by people who were in a good position to know the actual socio, etc. world in which they're talking about. They're connected to that time and place, whereas other documents, Gnostic, Gospel, etc., are not. Um, so that there's lots of different criteria that come into play, and I, I try and put a focus on some particularly important ones. How are we doing? Have we got like five minutes left? Five minutes left. Um, I've got Jesus' uh, resurrection and I've got Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament and Jesus' uh, 
role in contemporary spiritual experience of various different kinds, and I give testimony about various different contemporary types of experience and general arguments for the reliability of religious experience. Um, is there any one of those that you'd be particularly interested in me talking about? And I'll just go to that one. Yeah. The last one. The last one, the religious experience. That's a short one as well, so that's, that's uh, very good. I can flick through here. I basically follow Gary Habermas or um, William Lane Craig's kind of approach to the resurrection, what they call a minimal facts apologetic and I do some very conservative calculations with the the prophecy stuff Uh, but you've got some charts there uh, and I end up working out that there's about one chance in 1.8 times 10 to the power of 23 as a back of the envelope calculation of Jesus having fulfilled a very limited range of prophecies from the Old Testament that are very clearly Messianic prophecies that are that are verified in the New Testament by multiple independent sources. And just limiting to that very firmly nailed down data set, you end up with a very large improbability of him having fulfilled those pro- those those prophecies by chance. It's basically your odds of picking at random one pre-specified grain of sand out of all the grains of sand on planet Earth. It's that big a number. Uh, In terms of experience, I look at it under a number of different categories and say, uh, with N.T. Wright, we bring out this point that Christians have claimed that although Jesus isn't walking around Palestine anymore, available for us to meet him in that kind of a way, he is nonetheless with us in a real, though spiritual sense. We can get to know him. And I look at uh, six different categories of religious experience centered around Jesus. I look at uh, Christian religious experience combined with the principles of credulity and testimony. That, that's again back to the point about trust being fundamental to our knowledge. That if something seems to you to be the case, it's reasonable to believe that it really is the case until someone does something sufficient to undermine your trust. If you put things the other way around and said, I'm only ever going to trust something if someone can prove it to me, do something independent to prove it to me, well, then you'd have the same criticism of that proof. You'd say, well, I'll only believe the proof when, some, when someone does something independent of that proof to prove that it's really not deceptive. And you'd never believe anything. Um, there's a close analogy, and I, I look at sort of eight or nine points of analogy between religious and perceptual experience, like looking at a chair and saying, look, there's a chair in the room. If you can draw a close analogy between that kind of knowing and religious experiential, or what's called mystical knowledge, mystical experience... You can look at a best explanation type of argument from the spiritual transformation of those who trust Jesus, transformed lives, basically. And also look at public evidence, uh, not only of changed lives, but of things like miraculous words of knowledge, and I give several examples of that. Um, Angelic and demonic encounters, and I give some examples particularly of um, experiences with the demonic that convince people who are sceptical about the demonic and who know their psychology and their psychiatry. People who are minded to explain away the demonic and have access to all of our knowledge about how one might best explain it away 
and yet who nonetheless become convinced by personal experience that the demonic is real. And of course, in that context, that exorcism in the name of Jesus is something that works, that the demonic reacts to the name of Christ. And so that does something to back up the Christian view of who Jesus was, and also, of course, that Jesus was and the early church were performing exorcisms. There's modern experience of that today as well. If you are interested in that, there's a little bit of this in, in this book, but I did write some years ago a book called uh, The Case for Angels, which also looks at, at the demonic and gives a philosophical um, argument for belief in angels and demons. And finally, physical healings, various examples of uh, uh, miraculous healings, apparently in response, close connection to prayers in Jesus' name again. So that accumulation, sort of bit by bit, drip by drip, of evidence upon evidence upon evidence, uh, at the very least, I hope, will will help move the the reader who is not absolutely committed to not believing the Christian view of things closer to the Christian view of things, more open, perhaps, to other experiences. Having a personal experience is much more powerful than hearing about someone else's experience at second hand. Second hand experience has some weight, but having that experience yourself or seeing a miracle yourself, you know, that has even more. Um, but I'm, I'm just hoping to help people move closer to the Christian understanding of Jesus. And of course, I hope that many readers of the book who um, start out not hugely sceptical at the beginning might well go over that 50-50 line by the time that they come to the end. Um, and that's my, my prayer uh, for this book, really. So, thank you very much. And I really uh, enjoyed the interaction as we, as we went through. That was great. Thank you.